Well, breast surgery is our topic on this episode of the MSU Today podcast. And joining me today are two doctors from MSU Healthcare. We have Harvey L. Bumpers, MD, who's a professor of surgery in the College of Human Medicine. And Jessica Henderson, DO, is an assistant professor of surgery in the College of Human Medicine. It's a pleasure to welcome you both to the show. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Why don't we start with whichever one of you wants to start first. First, tell me how long have you been at MSU and what attracted you here in the first place? Um, all right, so I'm uh, Dr. Henderson. Um, I have been at MSU in an informal capacity for a while. Um, I came here in 2003 for um, my first undergrad degree, and I have been in the area since then as a student and uh, a surgical trainee. And now I'm back and working as an assistant professor of surgery. Why did you want to come back to your alma mater? Yes, um, I love Michigan State University. It has been home for me for, you know, since I came here as as an undergrad, as a freshman. I just love the community. I love the city. I love the university itself. And all those things really just made me want to come back and make this my home for the duration. And Dr. Bumpers, a little bit of your background and why you wanted to come to MSU. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, I, I actually came back as a came here as a uh, professor of surgery and uh, oncology. I had been doing uh, surgical oncology for about uh, 20 years at the time, but I've been here for the last uh, 11 years. I came here to do both clinical medicine and research. And one of the things that were really uh, um, attractive to me about Michigan State was not only that I had the opportunity to expand my clinical realm, but the, um, the research was a great opportunity. I thought that it was uh, would allow me to expand what I did not only with patient and patient care research, but also with the laboratory basic science research. And Michigan State offered uh, just a a wide area of research for me to participate in with regard to oncology. And you both must like working with the students because you're both surgeons and teachers. I don't know where you find the time, but you you must enjoy bringing up the next generation. For me, that's definitely true. I've been an academician all my life from uh, the time, from my training on to every uh, place where I ever worked. I've always been in, in academia. And uh, Michigan State has, as you know, uh, about 800 medical students and about 800 DO students or so. So we have a wide realm of students also to work with. And uh, so with that, uh, the research, the students, as well as the other training programs they have, from we do things with nurses and physician assistants as well. Maybe define for us when we're talking about breast oncology and sort of the mission of of the breast surgical oncology department. Um, Yeah, so, you know, we're both breast surgical oncologists. You know, specifically that means that we primarily treat breast cancer, but breast surgery as an umbrella really also focuses on benign breast disease, breast cancer, and then also making sure that we're screening the women who are high risk for developing breast cancer and making sure that they're being assessed throughout their lifetime you know, if they need to be. And so we see a, a really wide spectrum of breast disease. Yes, and just to add that, of course, as, onco- as breast oncologists, one of our um, foremost goals is to remove, surgically remove all the breast cancer that we can. We want good areas around the tumor. We are always going for a cure. And what that means is having a multidisciplinary partners that we always, you know, work with. 
the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist. And so our par for me and Dr. Henderson is always trying to remove all the tumor with clear margins around it. And any and the one other thing about an oncologist is we a surgical oncologist, we're always trying to remove everything we have to to safely remove the cancer, even if it means taking other organs or other tissue that's not the primary tissue, but you're doing that to get around the cancer. And that's something that surgical oncologists and breast surgical oncologists always try to do, always going for the cure. And is breast cancer pretty much genetic, or can your lifestyle, you know, help to avoid it? So some breast cancers are genetic, but one of the myths that we hear a lot is that a lot of women think that all breast cancer is genetic and that if they don't have a family history that they're not likely to develop breast cancer. But actually only a small portion of breast cancers are genetic in terms of being associated with what we call a high-risk genetic mutation. Having a family history does increase your risk, but it's not required to develop breast cancer. About one in eight women will develop breast cancer in their lifetime before the age of 85, even without a family history. So it's a very common, uh, very common cancer. Yes, and that's one of the opportunities that we have to when we talk about preventing cancer. We, is we can't prevent, uh, we don't know how to prevent breast cancer, which is why we always talk about early detection of breast cancer. But if we know, as Dr. Henderson stated, we know that you have a family history with uh, a genetic mutation, specifically things like the BRCA1, BRCA2, or the PALB2 mutations, then we can intervene to prevent those patients from developing cancers when about 65 to 85% of those patients may develop a cancer. So we can intervene there. Otherwise, it's early detection, finding it as soon as we can because we don't really know exactly what causes breast cancer. And is a mammogram the best way to determine whether someone has cancer? For most women, mammogram is the best initial screening test. Um, There are additional screening imaging studies that we do order sometimes in certain situations for some high-risk women, or if a mammogram is not consistent with what we're seeing on physical exam. But a mammogram is the best first screening test for developing or for identifying cancer at an early stage. And at what age should someone get their first one, and then how often? Uh, For a woman at average risk of cancer, they should start their screening mammograms at age 40. We start screening women earlier if they have a family history and or a genetic mutation that makes them a high risk uh, for developing breast cancer. And usually we um, talk about 10 years prior to the age that their relative was diagnosed with cancer. So for example, if a woman's mother developed breast cancer at age 45, we might start screening her at age 35. And Dr. Henderson, you mentioned earlier, you led me into this question about myths and facts, but are there some facts about breast cancer and breast oncology you'd like to reinforce or maybe some myths to dispel some more? Um, Yeah, so one of the ones that we hear a lot is that um, if a woman does not have any symptoms in her breast, such as uh, a palpable lump or pain, they feel that they can't have cancer because they associate those things with having cancer. But most of the time, especially early stage breast cancers, do not have any symptoms. So it's crucial to be screened. Absolutely. And uh, one other thing with regard to myths that we hear quite often is that I did not come to have anything done about this lump because it is cancer. If air hits it, 
it's going to spread all over my body. That's uh, not only for breath, but for many cancers, but I've heard that many, many times. And uh, the problem with what those patients don't understand is that most of the time people have that line of thinking. They know someone who have had surgery for a cancer and they had a lot of metastasis, but those people usually have waited so long to come that by the time they actually get treated, they already have disease that's elsewhere because of their fears for a number of the reasons, a number of the myths, some of those as Dr. Henderson also just mentioned. And how would you define breast health and how does one work to, to have the best health? Is it just the absence of cancer, or is it breast health no, more than that? No, I, I think you just have to uh, define how um, how you're going to be evaluated overall. For example, when a woman goes to her gynecologist, even a young woman, 20 years old, or a gynecologist or their medical doctor, that they also have a breast exam. Now, young women don't necessarily have to have them as often as older women. The breast exam, it used to tell them at least one every three years when you're in your 20s. I don't necessarily agree with that because there are a lot of young women who, only about 1% of breast cancer occur in young women, but many of them have family histories and other things that um, may make them prone to developing breast diseases, uh, not just the, the cancer, but other breast lumps, benign things like fibroadenomas. As, as Dr. Henderson stated, we treat other things other than just breast cancer, and it's difficult to know if that lump is something that's benign or otherwise unless it's either biopsied or there's a professional opinion about what's there. So you should treat your breast, I think, like the rest of your, your body and uh, get that examination um, annually as well. I realized that you had asked a, a two-part question earlier, and I only answered the first part, so I apologize, but you asked me about modifiable risk factors for breast cancer and whether lifestyle factors are a part, and I think that's part of breast health as well. Um, there are some risk factors that women can change and some that they can't. And like we talked about, the genetics and the family history, those are things that women can't change about their own genetic makeup, but things that they can change to protect themselves from developing breast cancer are, you know, lifestyle modifications like exercising regularly. We like to recommend 30 minutes, four to five times a week of moderate intensity exercise, um, reducing alcohol intake, trying to limit that, um, reducing their overall um, estrogen exposure over their lifetime. And this is an area that is um, under study constantly, but we do know that an increased exposure to estrogen over time does increase your risk for breast cancer. And that can come hmm. either from um, your natural cycles, like women who have their menstrual cycle earlier and go through menopause later, they have that longer period of time that they're exposed to estrogen. Women who don't have children or don't breastfeed also still have that estrogen exposure. Um, and then uh, women who have uh, hormone replacement therapy uh, around the time of menopause at a high dose for a long time, that can increase your risk for breast cancer somewhat. So just things that are modifiable. Um, other things are um, that a lot of people don't think about are the fact that um, obesity and carrying extra body weight, um, the fat tissue actually produces estrogen. So that going along with the other things that we talked about with the estrogen exposure, maintaining a healthy weight can also reduce your risk for cancer. Very interesting. So who should see you 
And do they come first through their primary care physician? Typically, yes. We get a lot of referrals from primary care and from OB-GYN offices in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, They're really great about identifying women who are at high risk for developing breast cancer in their lifetime, and they send them over to us to make sure that they're getting the um, correct screening. Um, And one of the ways that we determine who is high risk is by looking at Um, a comprehensive view of them as a person and their medical history. So we have some risk calculators that we use. There's several different ones that are um, validated in research studies and different ones are applicable to different populations. So we are careful about using these risk calculators to see who needs to be screened and then who may need to consider genetic counseling. Um, and genetic testing, because some women would benefit from even more screening than um, what we would do for an average risk woman. And some women even would benefit greatly from risk-reducing surgeries. Um, So we start to talk about risk-reducing mastectomies, for example, when we have patients with BRCA mutations. So those patients are um, usually in the realm of a 60 to 80 percent chance of breast cancer development. So talk a bit about how you treat as surgeons breast cancer, how do you go about doing that? Okay, so one of the first thing is to define that they actually have a cancer. People come in with all kind of lumps and cysts and all and other abnormalities and all of them are very afraid anyway. So one of the things, one of the first thing is to look at their imaging, um, determine how suspicious it is. We have a coding that we give to all, all the imaging, whether it looks benign or uh, suspicious or very malignant. Anything that looks suspicious or malignant uh, needs a biopsy. And the crux of uh, most of our diagnosis is the biopsy. We need to know, know if there is a cancer present. If there is cancer, then the, step is, the next step is, do we need to proceed with surgery first? In some cases, uh, based on the biopsy results, we may need to go with chemotherapy first. Uh, we look at the receptors on the tumor, the other estrogen, a progesterone receptor positive, or another receptor called a HER2 receptor, and some of those uh, will determine if they need chemotherapy first. Whether they, uh, if they're what you may have heard uh, in the terminology of triple negative, meaning all of the receptors are negative, they are at uh, more aggressive disease. Those patients are at higher risk of having a, a disease uh, present elsewhere, even at the time of diagnosis. So. Some of those patients, we want to go with chemotherapy first. Uh, However, but as a surgeon, our job is to uh, remove the the cancer and remove it with a clear margin. Sometimes it's very difficult to tell that you've taken out the entire cancer. Uh, We do not have anything that actually defines that your margin is clear other than the pathologist who actually looks at it. And, in, and, of course, with a larger cancer, they cannot look at the entire thing um, intraoperatively while you're actually doing the surgery. Therefore, they have to give us an interpretation after the surgery is done. And in those cases, some of those patients may have what is called a positive margin, which means that there are cancer cells seen at the edge of the tumor, which means there could be cancer cells left at the, at the inside edge in the patient. And those patients would need to go back to surgery to have uh, those areas what we call re-excised. And that's one of the things we've talked about, some of the research and some of the uh, new uh, t- 
innovative technology that's weird, that's uh, 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 being uh, investigated at this time is, can we do that intraoperatively before uh, the patient uh, has uh, left the operating room and has to come back to have re-excision? Are there mechanisms we can do to determine if those margins are positive ahead of time? And so for us as surgeons, we are always trying to remove the tumor and clear the margin and uh, that may be with a lumpectomy, or maybe with a mastectomy. Sometimes we may even need to do a bilateral mastectomy and investigate the lymph nodes as well. And is there some exciting research or treatment options coming around the horizon that you're excited about? Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of research happening in the breast surgical oncology world right now with a lot of new and upcoming changes to existing practice guidelines. Um, part of that is driven by a really wonderful um, improvement in systemic immunotherapy in uh, breast cancer treatment on the medical oncology side. And some of it is driven by um, trying to de-escalate some of the, the cancer surgery that we're doing. Um, you know, our goal is to cure cancer and to remove everything that we can. Um, but there are some side effects to extensive surgery that We've been trying to limit for quite a while. So examples of things are decreasing the number of times that we need to complete an axillary dissection on a woman, meaning that we have to remove all of the lymph nodes under her arm um, after a surgery. There's a lot of studies coming out that are showing that um, those dissections may not be necessary in all cases, and we may be able to safely assess the lymph node status based on a single uh, set of lymph node biopsies called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, uh, meaning that we only take anywhere from one to four lymph nodes as opposed to up to 30. And, and one other thing also, uh, along those same lines of uh, limiting some of the things that we do, um, is the uh, use of surgery and radiation. This is uh, kind of a uh, I should say, uh, important to me uh, with regard to patients who have to have long-term radiation following surgery. Uh, it's uh, required for many patients who have lumpectomies, et cetera. You know they get an increased cure rate if they have radiation afterward. But radiation generally is a, a, a course of therapy that's five days a week for six weeks. Uh, if it's a lumpectomy that's been modified some, so it's five days a week for three and a half to four weeks which is a uh, shorter course of radiation with equal effectiveness. However, we can get that down to, and we do that, we're doing that here at Michigan State, uh, stayed with our partners in radiation for the last uh, nine or ten years. I was doing it about uh, five or six years before I came here. They call accelerated partial breast radiation when they can get the same effective radiation five days a week twice a day for five days as opposed to four to six weeks or opposed to three and a half to four weeks and um, and all the radiation therapy is done. It's ra the catheter is put in in the operating room. They start the radiation within two days, two to three days after the catheter is placed and then it goes twice a day for five days. Otherwise, you have to wait a month after surgery before starting radiation and then the radiation would go either three and a half to four weeks or six weeks of radiation. So that's, that's one area that has really improved uh, adjuvant treatment. The other area along those same lines is, which we 
I have not quite got to the point of doing here in uh, Lansing, Michigan yet though, is intraoperative radiation, where the patient can actually have the radiation done in the operating room, about 30 to 40 minutes, uh, and knock out the uh, five days of radiation, knock out the three and a half to four weeks of radiation, and all of it done in just 25 to 30 minutes, 25 to 40 minutes, depending on the type of equipment that's used. That's something that's been on the horizon. I hope that we see it soon here in, in uh, Lansing, but it is something that's there. Good. Yeah, that's great. And can you talk a bit about your outreach and the breast cancer disparity in the community, how you address that and get representative clinical trials? Uh, number one, there's a big health disparity uh, between certain populations in the community. Those with those uh, underserved, disadvantaged, minority, et cetera, populations are uh, are the ones who actually have the worst outcomes with their cancer, but they're also the ones that have the least involvement with uh, tr- clinical trials and all. So, one of the thing is one of the biggest thing is uh, making the community more aware. Uh, and again, as Dr. Henderson mentioned, some of the myths there are a number of other myths that they believe in that prevent them from getting trials, going into the trials, such as the myth of trust and not trusting that the, that the doctor's going to either do the right thing or that they're experimenting on them without actually you know, treating them and all. So so that is one of the biggest things. So the biggest thing is having the outreach with the community so they uh, understand that if you don't participate in the trials, then your what you the treatment you're getting are based on the treatment that they've shown is effective in some other group, right? So and the so the percent of the undervalued minorities um, um, that have been participating has went up some. It used to be only about five percent or less when they're generally about fifteen to sixteen percent of the community, uh, and they went up for about six or seven. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, about seven to eight percent and all, but. That is is really really necessary, and also there may be other factors, not just race and disadvantage, but other socioeconomic issues that go on, which also uh, will affect how they respond to therapy. Seems like that could be a position in itself. The person who recruits people for a clinical trial, right? Oh, yeah, we absolutely have staff all over everywhere we practice in the different departments. Actually, whose role that is? It's a very robust program um, to be able to do that. And it requires a lot of coordination. (laughs) So, you know, we really appreciate the help of our research coordinators on that front. So is there anything important I haven't asked you yet? Or or what would you like to add that's important to leave with our listeners about breast cancer, breast surgery, oncology? Yeah, I I would just like to say, I think that, um, you know, some women tend to maybe put off coming into have a visit or be screened, or if they feel something abnormal in their breast, they tend to delay coming in because they're afraid of what it might mean. And I will say most of the time, the treatment for early stage cancer, while there are some steps involved, is really well tolerated by most women and has changed so much in the last even five to 10 years that, um, you know, it's really something that you don't have to be afraid of, you know, don't, Don't delay care because you're afraid of what the treatment might entail. Um, Even when chemotherapy and mastectomy and radiation are all needed, 
they have come a long way in the last decade in reducing the side effects and the you know subsequent issues down the road for those treatments and you know it's it's just a few bumps in the road for some women to then be able to live the rest of your long happy life dr bumpers and yeah and i would like to also stress uh not to delay or not come in for treatment because you are concerned that you either don't have the money, you don't have the funds, or how are you going to have these tests done? There's always um, funds for treating the cancer patient. Whether you have money, whether you don't have money, whether you have insurance or not, there are programs and uh, you always will have medical assistance for treating pretty much every cancer. So that is a, uh, the delay is a big problem with breast cancer. Uh, tumors that grow larger, you have, a, they have a higher probability of having spread and metastasized. Uh, tumors that are delayed in being treated, even if they didn't appear to get larger, they also had a delay in treatment, uh, increase your uh, risk of having uh, metastatic uh, distant disease. So, uh, and some women do, and I know multiple during my time who did not come in because they either did not have insurance or wondered where they were going to get the money to pay for the extra mammogram they're going to have to have or didn't even want additional tests once they knew they had a lump. But there are funds that treat that and there are social services and all that will help you to identify those. The second thing I want to say, which is something that's kind of dear to my heart, is the cancer research and all. Oftentimes, um, we will ask patients, uh, aside from clinical trials, that's one area. The other area is actually the basic science of research where we need to... Uh, take parts of your tumor sometimes to use it in some of the studies that we do in the laboratory where we're trying to define a therapy against cancer. We take those tumors. Sometimes we grow the, grow the cells up in flask and Petri dishes and test uh, therapy against them. We're able to a lot of times grow human tumors in actual mice and the tumor maintain its human characteristics and then we could treat those tumors in certain respect with with uh, therapies as well. So, uh, and uh, again, I've been very fortunate that all the patients I've asked to participate or have me take some of their tumor, they're always like, what am I going to do with it? Sure, you can have it. <laughs> so, you know, and that, and that works very well for us because not just myself, uh, but other um, uh, scientists within the university they can come and even ask me if I have those tumors, and they have appropriate in, in institutional review board protocols that they, to uh, give them some of those tumors to use on certain other type of experiments. And um, so I just want to encourage uh, patients that to you know say yes when those things are asked because they really may not give you any uh, immediate benefit uh, because they're used in research, and down the line it may benefit people to 5, 10 15 years down the line, that's how we got to the point where we are now with regard to new therapies. And one one thing that, of course, Dr. Henderson mentioned also was the immunotherapy, which is a big factor now in treating in treating our cancers. Uh, a lot of that came from us doing having things like these tumors from patients who said, yes, you can have some of my cancer to work with. It could end up saving someone in their own family yes. down the road. Who knows? Absolutely. That's right, exactly. Absolutely. So, you know, in addition Thanks. to... Um, women who are more likely to get breast cancer, we do also treat male patients. Um, men do get breast cancer. 
Uh, men are likely to get breast cancer if they have a family history of other men with breast cancer, um, if they carry a genetic mutation that is um, putting them at high risk for developing breast cancer. Um, but some men also just tend to uh, develop these tumors. And the best way for men to get screened um, if they do have a family history is to come in and see us and we can assess them and make sure that they're being screened appropriately and getting any maybe genetic testing if indicated. Um, but the primary screening tool for men with breast cancer is usually just a self-exam. So if a man notices a breast lump, it's important that he gets it checked out because it's unusual to have um, breast lumps in men that are not concerning. It can occur, um, but we also treat um, benign breast disease in men also. And just to echo what Dr. Henderson uh, said, about 1% of the cancers occur, occur in men, uh, but we do treat all men with breast diseases. Uh, and one of the things about a man with breast cancer is you come in with even the smallest breast cancer. It, the only One of the difference between that and the female is that you're always going to get a mastectomy. There's no reason to try to save the little tiny bit of breast that we have in men uh, and uh, to get uh, complete therapy. Those men, men usually get a total mastectomy. Well, on this episode of MSU Today, we've been talking about the breast surgical oncology area at MSU Healthcare with Dr. Harvey L. Bumpers, MD, a professor of surgery in the College of Human Medicine as well, and Jessica Henderson, DO, is an assistant professor of surgery in the College of Human Medicine. Uh, for more information, healthcare.msu.edu is the place to go. And thank you both for sharing your expertise with us today. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm Russ White. This is MSU Today.